we've heard about lots of people and there will be people and perhaps yourselves things that um, we want to bring before God in prayer so we're going to spend some time now in our seats praying silently and bringing all these people our own concerns and our needs all those things that we need God's deliverance from and after a few minutes um, of time in silent prayer uh, I will lead us all in a final prayer to conclude We bring ourselves, the people we know about, the people we love and care for, all the names that we've lifted up to you this morning. Bring deliverance to them and to us. Rescue from sickness. Rescue from faith lost or faith Weakened or faith never had at all. Rescue from complacency or indifference towards the suffering of others. Turn our hearts to the hope of the kingdom, to our future deliverance and our present joy that these things are only momentary. Amen. We'll sing of God's rescue and his redemption for us in our next song. Um, the words will be on the screen as well. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, for sinners slain, thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. Let's stand and sing together. Um, we'll take a reading now. Um, it's from the book of the Mr. Men. Um, and it's the story of this particular character, Mr. Silly. Um, hopefully, Everybody who's had anything to do with children since the 70s will know about the Mr. Men, and I'm not introducing a strange or unfamiliar set of characters to you. Um, I'd love to read the story to you, but I will just um, summarise some of the highlights. Um, where does Mr. Silly live? He lives in nonsense land, which is a very funny place to live. And there are a number of very strange and silly things that happen in nonsense land. For example, um, the trees are red and the grass is blue. Dogs wear hats and birds fly backwards. Mr. Silly lives in a silly house and wakes up one morning to enter the Nonsense Cup. To win the Nonsense Cup in Nonsense Land, you have to think of something very silly because, of course, in Nonsense Land, things um, that would be deeply abnormal in our world are utterly commonplace and matter-of-fact. Past entries for the Nonsense Land Cup have included a car um, with square, square wheels, and Mr. Silly knows that the competition is going to be intense this year. And he has a beautifully silly idea, and the king of Nonsense Land stands up to announce before the assembled crowds the winner of this year's Nonsense Cup. The square apple looks like a strong contender, as does the teapot with a spout bent backwards so that it can never quite pour out that long-needed cup of tea. 
And the crowd think that the teapot with the backward spout has clinched it and start to cheer and their, no- their voices raise um, in celebration. And suddenly the king looks up and looks out at the city square. And in the middle of the city square, there is a tree. What has happened to the tree? No longer does the tree have red leaves, it has green leaves. And so something deeply normal and commonplace in our own own world um, is regarded as the height of nonsense in nonsense land, whose values are entirely um, topsy-turvy and contradictory. And thus, Mr. Silly, at the end of the story, wins for doing something that we would find entirely banal and commonplace, which is finding a tree with green leaves. That's probably where the silliness finishes for now, um, because I've got a serious message this morning. The Bible tells an extended parable from Genesis right through to Revelation about nonsense land. But in the Bible, it goes by a different name. And it's this nonsense land where things that should be and are deeply abnormal in our reality are entirely normal and commonplace and respected. And we're going to think about one particular person who goes along with the nonsense and makes it normal. Almost until the point at which it's too late. And finally, deliverance comes. And it's that deliverance that gives us lessons about our deliverance, our need for salvation and rescue, the need for God's amazing grace. And that is the story um, that we'll be talking about this morning. So, what's nonsense land called in the, in the Bible? It's called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the Bible's equivalent of nonsense land, but perhaps not for the reasons that we might traditionally um, have assumed or expected. So, what does the story of Lot, the man in need of rescue, what does the story of the Bible's nonsense land, Sodom and Gomorrah, What does it have to speak to us about our time and place? This is a story told in a Bronze Age culture about a people whose ways of life seem so remote and so different. What can they possibly mean for us living in the 21st century West? Quite a lot. But I think it's only really when we listen to what Isaiah and Ezekiel and our own Lord Jesus have to say about this biblical nonsense land um, that those lessons will really come home to roost. So I want us to think this morning about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the biblical nonsense land, the choices that Lot made for good and for ill, the Bible's diagnosis of what was really wrong with that abnormal and deeply disturbing place and what Ezekiel and Jesus specifically condemn it for. And finally, I want to bring it back home because there's some great psychological honesty about Lot um, that speaks to us and our state and our need for that amazing grace, God's redemption and forgiveness. So, a biblical reading this time. Um, I will be putting some key passages on screen. Um, If you want to follow this um, so that you know where I'm coming from, um, I'll give you the references as well. So, we're in the early chapters of Genesis. We're learning about the family of Abram and his descendants, his wife, um, his brother's son, Lot. They live in a place called Haran, and they leave. They leave for the land of Canaan. And... Abram and his wife Sarai have some interesting um, experiences in Egypt, which we don't have time to think about this morning. Um, And then we begin our engagement with this story in Genesis chapter 13. 
So from Egypt, Abram went up from the Negev, he and his wife and all that he possessed, and Lot went with him. And Abram and Lot have been blessed by God. They are rich and prosperous, but it's not enough, as we read about in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 5. Since Lot, who was traveling with Abraham, or with Abram, also possessed sheep and cattle and tents, the land could not support them while they were together. They had so much livestock that they could not settle in the desert in the same district, and quarrels arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. And from this Bronze Age time and place, we've suddenly got a story about overpopulation, about competition from natural resources, and the kind of situation that Leek gives rise to, economically driven immigration. There isn't enough in one place to go around. People start to starve and suffer and have to go without. And they look from wherever they are, from Syria, from Libya, from wherever they live, to better places and a hope of more for their families and those that they love. Abram and Lot come to an agreement. Abram, the older man, gives Lot a choice about where to go. And we read in verse 10, Lot looked around and saw how well watered the whole plain of Jordan was, all the way to Zor. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. I've heard those Bible talks, and you might have heard them too, where speakers can take the moral high ground with Lot and say, well, you know, there's Lot, so lazy, taking the easy way out, and Abram is the morally righteous person in the story. He does the hard but righteous thing. That's a hard condemnation. I side with Lot in this situation. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't when they saw their family struggling to feed themselves? Look to a more prosperous place and think, I can feed my children if I go there. And so we don't get the psychology of Lot's choices. And I'm reading things into the story that might not be there. But I think what Lot chooses to do is entirely understandable and entirely forgivable. It's the right choice. It's the sensible choice, um, even though subsequently um, it has some really negative moral implications for Lot. But he doesn't know that, perhaps, at the time. And Abram settles in Canaan. Lot settles amongst the cities of Plain and pitches his tent near Sodom, who's on the outskirts at the moment. And that fact itself will become particularly important as our story goes on. And then we get to Genesis chapter 14. And we've had one modern story already about economic migrants needing um, to leave places where resources are scarce and go somewhere else to find um, more. And we read in Genesis chapter 14 this. In those days, King Aramaphel of Shinar, King Arlok of Elsar, King Kedamalama of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim, they went to war against King Beer of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinar of Admah, King Shmeba of Zeboim, and the King of Bela, which is in Zor. Now, they're called kings in the Old Testament story, but I think the only way um, to bring this story into our own context in a time and place is to think about them as warlords. So here's a picture of a warlord. Um, this is Abu Bakr al-Baghradi, the leader of ISIS. And suddenly, this Bronze Age story becomes a very modern one because we've got warlords in the Middle East fighting over small patches of territory for control. And so this sort of slightly mystical language of kings of different places with odd names suddenly comes bang up to date. This is a modern story. 
It's about conflict and tension over very small pieces of ground, over cities and places. So the warlords fight, and something bad happens. Verse 11, the four kings captured all the flocks and herds of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and withdrew, carrying off Abram's nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom with his flocks and herds. So we have warlords fighting in the Middle East. We have a kidnap um, of a foreign, foreign national who is Lot. And then there's a rescue. The happy outcome that doesn't happen quite so often in our time and place. So Abram goes out after Lot, and we read in verse 16, he recovered all the flocks and herds, and also his kinsman Lot with his flocks and herds, together with the women and all his company. And on Abram's return from defeating Kirdalama and the allied kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavir, which is now the king's valley. And then there's the story of Melchizedek, which again, we don't have time to, to think about this morning. And then there's a conversation a fascinating conversation between the king of Sodom and between and Abram. This is what we read in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and you can take the livestock. But Abram replied, I lift my hand and swear by the Lord, God most high, creator of the heavens and the earth, not a thread or a sandal thong shall I accept of anything that is yours. You will never say, I made Abram rich. Isn't that fascinating? You see, in those few tight sentences, that little exchange between the king of Sodom and Abram, again, we've got some real human story about what was happening to Lot already um, as he lived and moved closer and closer to the Bible's nonsense land, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does the king of Sodom have a claim over Lot already? Why is he so interested in hanging on to Lot and his family? Has Lot already got a bit of Stockholm Syndrome and forgot that his captors are his enemies? How has Lot compromised from being a foreign natural to starting to become a naturalised citizen of nonsense land? And here... We should give credit to Abram, quite rightly. You will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I remain uncompromised. Give me the people, says the king of Sodom, and you can take the livestock. And Abram says in reply, you will never say, I made Abram rich. And... Then in the story in Genesis, we leave Sodom and Gomorrah for a while and the story um, focuses on Abram. So what happens then? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll read about some of the more horrible details a bit later on, becomes a byword, it becomes a proverb, it becomes a story. It becomes almost a kind of... um, sort of portmanteau kind of word, so where we might say Auschwitz or Holocaust, and although we're talking about specific historical events, we might apply that to any mass genocide um, or destruction. We might talk about Dresden um, or Hiroshima, and again, be able to apply that to any similar um, brutal um, conquest or destruction. So these words get removed from the historic context, from time and place, 
and they suddenly start to stand as symbols for particular kinds of activity or behaviour. And so it is with the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible's nonsense land. It becomes a byword for desolation, an example of God's destruction of the wicked. It's used very negatively against God's people, um, as we'll see a bit later on this morning. God says to his own people, to Jerusalem, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. You are like Sodom and Gomorrah. It becomes an example, a name of approbation for people who reject the gospel um, in Jesus' time. So let's just pause. Let's reflect on what we've learned so far. What happened to Lot? He was tempted. He faced a tough choice. He had a family to feed. There wasn't enough to go around. There was a struggle and a competition for resources. We might say, with the benefit of moral hindsight, he took the easy way out. I think he made a good choice. He made a sensible choice, um, an understandable choice in looking after his family. But what had started out as being the right thing for his family and the right thing for him seems to have started to become a problem. And I wonder, when we know about those men of Sodom and their wickedness, that Lot got closer and closer to nonsense land, from pitching his tents outside the city to living within its walls. He compromised and compromised and compromised. It's fine. I know my values. I know where I've come from. I know who my God is, until he was incapable of recognising the tree with red leaves as being deeply troubling and abnormal. I wonder if by the time we encounter him in this um, kidnap and rescue situation that he'd be actually become a naturalised subject of Sodom, such as that his, the king of Sodom had a hold over him that he couldn't escape. Sodom had its claws deep into Lot. He was in a tough place. But we don't know because the Old Testament doesn't tell us Lot's state of mind. The New Testament does, um, and we'll be getting there um, a bit later on. So what's wrong with nonsense land? What is wrong um, with Sodom and Gomorrah? Terrible things um, happen indeed, and we'll think about um, those a bit later on. But the moral condemnation doesn't come in Genesis. It comes much later. Um, let's see what Isaiah has to say about Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is Isaiah chapter 1. So remember I said that Sodom and Gomorrah has become a byword in the same way that we might use the Holocaust or Auschwitz or Hiroshima or Dresden in a much more generalized sense. So it's true for Isaiah, speaking the words of God against God's people. Isaiah verse nine, chapter 1 verse 9, Had the Lord of hosts not led, left us as a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom, no better than Gomorrah. But then the prophet says, listen to the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Your countless sacrifices, what are they to me, says the, the Lord. Verse 16, wash and be clean, put away your evil deeds far from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, pursue justice, guide the oppressed, uphold the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. These moral judgments start to tell us what was really wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah and what was really wrong with God's people. What does Isaiah, the prophet, say to us in Isaiah chapter 3? What's wrong? What's wrong with God's people? Isaiah chapter 3 verse 9. 
The look on their faces testifies against them. Like Sodom, they proclaim their sins, parading them openly. And I think that's the nub of what's wrong with the biblical nonsense land. They'd made abnormal things normal. They proclaim their sins, parading them openly. as though It was absolutely fine to live such an immoral life. It's fine that the trees have red leaves. It doesn't matter that trees should have green leaves in any normal um, time and place. The trees in Sodom are red and nobody's noticed and the leaders of the people are saying, it's okay, this is normal. And that, perhaps, was Lot's problem. Jerusalem is brought low. Like Sodom, they proclaim their sin, proclaiming them openly. That is what was wrong with nonsense land. And the Bible is remarkably consistent. Let's go forward to Jeremiah chapter 23. And again, the prophet is talking about and against God's people. He's using this language, this figurative now language of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says this. Jeremiah 23 verse 14. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I see a thing most horrible. Adulterers and hypocrites, they encourage evildoers so that no one turns back from their sin. To me, all her inhabitants are like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophets of Jerusalem encourage evildoers. They make the wrong things normal. They say it's okay to be like that. I think I'm feeling fairly secure at this point. I don't feel particularly guilty of adultery or hypocrisy. I don't feel particularly guilty of promoting evil doing either from this platform, in my work in the church, in my private life. But Ezekiel brings it right back home. Ezekiel uh, chapter 16 and verse 46. So Ezekiel chapter 16, this is verse 48 for a bit of context. As I live, says the Lord God, your your sister Sodom and her daughters never behaved as you and your daughters have done. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had the pride that goes with food in plenty and comfort and ease, and yet she never helped the poor in their need. They grew haughty and committed what was abominable in my sight, and I swept them away, as you are aware. Now, This starts to hurt a bit in my comfortable life with more than enough to eat, the ease of having to work quite hard but not too hard. And suddenly the story of Sodom and Gomorrah comes right back home to me. And now I'm thinking, and you may not be, I'm making the wrong things normal too. And what does Jesus say? Let's listen to Jesus speaking to us in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is responding to questions about the coming kingdom of God. And as I reread these, I was put very much in mind of um, the morning that Trevor led for us uh, a few weeks ago, thinking about um, that sense, that need to recapture um, a sense of anticipation of the coming kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate and drank and married until the day that Noah went into the ark and the flood came and made an end of them all. So too, in the days of Lot, they ate and drank, they bought and sold, they planted and built. Those are pretty normal things. 
That's not gang raping visitors or sacrificing the wrong kind of animals. That's just normal stuff. So too in the days of Lot, they ate and drank, they bought and sold, they planted and built. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from the sky and made an end of them all. Remember Lot's wife, says Jesus, in a very telling remark. And we'll think about what he meant by that um, in just a second. That's quite a lot of verses and quite a lot of condemnation. I hope I haven't brought you down too low. I'm going to lift you up quite soon. Remember Lot's wife. Um, you might have to look at this after as this is a painting by um, 18th, 19th century painter called John Martin. And it's all about the tempest surrounding um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then just in the right-hand corner, you've got Lot and his family and Lot's wife looking back. Maybe that's one to look at afterwards. So there were lots of things that were wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. But fundamentally, the sin was making the wrong things normal. It was nonsense land and it was normal for the trees to have pink leaves. And some people, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, even Lot himself, started to get acculturated to that normality and make the wrong things normal. And if we learn the lessons of Sodom and Gomorrah, we focus on what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Jesus say was wrong with those two cities and not the things that we might assume because then the lessons come home to roost and they come home to roost quite hard with us. But there is hope. There is hope. Let's just go back very briefly to Genesis 18 and 19. Lot's been rescued by Abram, but he still goes back to Sodom. And he's in Sodom when those angelic, those heavenly visitors um, come into the city. By the time they arrive, Lot is sitting in the city gate, we read in Genesis chapter 19. He's in there now. That's where the rulers of the city sat, in the city gate. He's gone from living on the plains in his tents to living within the city to having a position of control and authority. He's compromised and compromised and compromised and compromised and the king of Sodom's got a hold on him and there's no escape now because he's part of the system as well. And terrible things happen. I don't really want to talk about those. But they prompt Lot to escape. They prompt Lot to heed the warning that the visitors bring and say, it's time to go. It's time to go because judgment is coming on the city and God is giving you this one chance, this one chance to escape. And I wonder, if being kidnapped and being rescued by his brother and hearing the, I assume, the conversation that went on between Abraham and Lot didn't make you want to get out of there and run as fast as you could to somewhere else, did it have did something so terrible have to happen to Lot's guests or his family to finally wake him out of his complacency and his sense that it was okay to live in nonsense land? It was okay for the wrong things to be normal. It, it did. He got out. But Jesus says, remember Lot's wife? She looked back. She couldn't quite leave that different way of life behind. But there is hope. 
there is hope. Remember I said that we, don't, we never get an insight into Lot's state of mind. We don't get an insight into his state of mind from Genesis or anywhere else in Scripture. We don't get that until we get to Peter's second letter, Second Peter chapter 2. This um, is my last reference this morning. I've imagined myself into Lot's state of mind. I've tried to find understanding in the choices that he made. But Peter tells us what that man was thinking. So Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemning them to total ruin as an object lesson for the ungodly in future days. But he rescued Lot. He rescued Lot. And now we should start breathing a sigh of relief. He rescued Lot, a good man, says Peter. A good man distressed by the dissolute habits of the lawless society in which he lived. Maybe, Peter's telling us, it wasn't quite as bad as we'd assumed. Maybe Lot wasn't entirely compromised by the values of nonsense land. Maybe he still knew that trees should have green leaves. It was ridiculous for them to have red leaves. That's nonsense. Day after day, every sight and sound of their evil ways tortured that good man's heart. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. What a relief. What a relief. So Peter says, even if you're compromised, even if you're living there in nonsense land and you think there's no way of escape and you're still troubled, God will give you a way out, just as he gave Lot a way out of the most abhorrent and terrible set of circumstances that you can possibly imagine. Lot just had to be committed. He just had to leave and never look back. That's all he had to do. He had to believe and leave and look forward not back. Believe and leave and look forward and not back. And that's what we do. We look to Jesus, we believe, we leave our old way of life behind and we look forward to the hope of the kingdom and God will rescue us, says Peter. This wasn't meant to be an apologist to all Welsh people either listening to this or in the audience. This was not meant to be one of those sort of hellfire and damnation um, sermons that Welsh preachers in my imagination give. It was just, nor was it meant to be condemning the world outside the walls of the church as being morally corrupt and wicked and to be shunned and ignored at all costs. It was a reminder. It was a reminder for me to read scripture carefully, to understand what's really going on and what God really doesn't like and what he values. It's a reminder to me and to you and the people who listen to this that if we're compelled by love to follow a saviour who renounced home and family and possessions, we must also remember the lessons of the life of Lot. We must constantly be distressed and think, this isn't normal, this isn't right. With the trees outside might not have pink leaves, but we might see poverty and injustice and suffering and exploitation and warlords and kidnapping and all those terrible things. And if we ever become indifferent to those things, then we've become as compromised as Lot was. We should be troubled by what we see. 
We're on our way somewhere else. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about what we see and and hear about right now. And in fact, if we're not complacent, and in fact, if we do recognize them, we'll be compelled to do something about it right now because that's the best way of showing people what the glorious future will be like. If we make the wrong things normal, if we get complacent or distracted, then perhaps we should start to be frightened. Fundamentally, the brutal reminder of scripture is that we are all sinners. We are all sinners in need of rescue from Sodom and in need of God's amazing grace. Lot thought he could live in Sodom and Gomorrah and maintain his integrity, and he struggled. He probably made lots of nonsense things normal, but equally perhaps, as Peter says, that sense of God inside him gnawed away at him on the inside and kept him distressed and uncomfortable and constantly thinking, this isn't right, this isn't normal, I need to get out of here. But it only really came home to Lot when it affected him and his guests and his family. And that was the big confrontation between Lot's current way of life and the future. It's the same confrontation that the cross of Jesus brings to us and say, how else can I show you that where you're living is wrong? How hard do I have to show you that you need to change believe and leave and look forward we're going to sing in a moment the song amazing grace and i learned something new about that song quite recently i'd always assumed that john newton had written this song sort of after he'd given up slave trading and all the really horrible and bad stuff um but i've read that perhaps he didn't perhaps he was writing that when he was thinking that things like drinking too much and gambling were bad things and while he was still carrying on being a slave trader And in some ways that horrified me because the slave trading was the big evil thing that was going on in his life and the drinking too much and gambling were probably fairly minor things. But it made me think, is it the same thing that happened to Lot? That gnawing, growing sense of God's grace and the power of God's Holy Spirit in his life that fundamentally changed his perspective on everything in his life. And it grew and it grew and it grew and he left one thing behind after another because he wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to be an expression of that amazing grace that perhaps had started small, but brought about that broadening and deepening sense of distress until he had no other choice but to leave all the things that he knew were wrong, all the abnormal things in the nonsense land in which he lived, the drinking and the gambling and the slave trading, and become a fully committed disciple of God. So let's rejoice. What does Peter say? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. The Lord will rescue us from all the things that are abnormal and wrong and disturbing and uncomfortable about our lives. That's the hope that we rejoice in and share. And let's sing about it now. It's praise the Lord 134. Amazing grace. God confronts us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That big, terrible confrontation between our old way of life and his. And for those of us who believe and leave and commit through baptism to Jesus, We are instructed to share and remember and never forget 
that we've left something old behind, that we're now looking forward and never backwards to a glorious future because of God's amazing grace. Jesus says, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread which I shall give is my own flesh given for the life of the world. Paul is going to come and lead our thanks for the bread that we're about to share. Dear Father God, thank you once again for this opportunity to come together as a family and to remember your son and in the bread that we're about to eat to remember that we are united together as your body and that we are citizens of your kingdom not citizens of nonsense land help us to keep that in our hearts and always look forward but know that we are already part we are already the members of your kingdom and that our destination is always with you when that kingdom is established on earth so we thank you and we praise you as we eat this bread in Jesus name Amen If anyone eats this bread he will live forever My flesh, says Jesus, is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. It is not like the bread which our fathers ate. They are dead, but whoever eats this bread will live forever. Derek is going to come and offer our thanks for the cup that we're about to share. Our loving, wonderful Heavenly Father, what a privilege it has been this morning to listen to Richard, so inspired by your word. His presentation, his heartfelt words, the love that inspired him to present to us this very, very special reminder of where we stand in our relationship with you, Heavenly Father, and with our relationship with Jesus. We are so so wonderfully blessed, Heavenly Father. And what a morning it's been. Absolutely special, Heavenly Father. We've come to remember Jesus 
And in this instance, we have been challenged to remember Jesus and what he really, really means to us on a day-by-day basis. How we have to be so thankful that we have this relationship with you as directed by Jesus to live lives far, far away from that land, that silly land, that we can absolutely banish from our lives and look to the good in our lives in Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this wine, which is so precious to us. We thank you for the love of Jesus. And we thank you for this morning especially, for the words we've heard, and for the meaning that we have been given to take away and to rejoice in and to be happy with and confident in in our day-to-day lives. So I ask you to be with us, Heavenly Father, always until that wonderful day which we will look forward to. We shall not look back. We shall look forward to that wonderful day when this world is made perfect and there will be no sighing and no crying, no pain, no suffering. The world will be perfect with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Let's share together this real drink. Leave. Don't look back. God rescues Lot. He will rescue the godly from their trials. We'll celebrate that rescue and the coming of the Lord in singing together our final hymn, These Are the Days of Elijah. And then John Fain will come and close our time of worship and remembrance in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this place of safety. We thank you for this place of hope and this place of grace. We thank you for our brother Richard today and the words he's given us. And we thank you for the the music and the songs that we have proclaimed. But where do we go now? We walk out of this building and we go into nonsense land. We go out into a country where we have a minimum wage, but not a maximum wage. We go out into a country where... The poor are told to work harder by giving them less. But the rich are encouraged to work harder by giving them more. It's just nonsense. And that's such an easy thing for me to say. And I suppose it makes us feel better to know that the world is like that. But with the bread and the wine, we are encouraged not to look outwards as much as look at the speck in our own eye. 
The speck in our own eye, the speck in my eye, is a lot, because I am like Lot. How many seconds will it take for us to compromise ourselves when we leave this building? As our brother Richard has encouraged us today, exhorted us, we must walk away from that. Walk away. We must pray to you, our almighty Father, and we must give thanks for your dear Son who has given us the chance to walk away. And what do we walk towards? We walk towards not Great Britain, but we walk towards the United Kingdom when all the people of the world will be united in a place of justice and love and grace. Father God, be with us now and as we walk towards you and help us not to compromise ourselves. Amen.